Luke 13, verses 10 through 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the rulers of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Grass withers, the flower fades, Word of our God endures or stands forever. So we're heading into this next teaching section of Jesus in Luke chapter 13. It's a, it's a new teaching opportunity for Jesus. This is the last time here in Luke that we see Jesus going to a synagogue and likely um, just For history's sake, this is probably the last time that Jesus does minister in a synagogue. This is towards the end of his ministry, and so he's touring around. The the synagogues had ruling elders. They'd let traveling uh, itinerant pastors, ministers in, and they'd get to speak. And so Jesus shows up, and he gets into a bit of trouble uh, at the synagogue on this occasion. So although this is a new section, a new teaching opportunity, I think that Luke really puts these two together uh, for a reason. We don't want to lose sight of all that we've been talking about um, when we go to this next teaching section. There is a reason Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts these stories together. And if you remember the past chapter and a half, Jesus has been driving home the desperate place that sinners find themselves in. I mean, it's just been hard stuff to work through. Very serious stuff. The servants who aren't ready for the master when he shows up and then they are cut to pieces. I mean, there's just all these warnings about taking them and throwing throwing them into the fire. Just all this repentance being asked for that Jesus has come to not bring peace, but division. That Jesus is being as a dividing line that we should look and interpret the times. Here is the Son of Man. Make a decision to settle with your accuser. All of these very hard sayings coming from Jesus. But I think It's easy then to come off of something like that and just feel this oppressive way as though this is all Jesus has said. And it is that there's there's a 
there's a um, completeness that we get from the scripture that we have to look at the whole picture of who Christ is. People tend to favor one side or the other. People tend to always emphasize soft, cuddly Jesus and, and reject and kind of put in a corner hard words Jesus or other people kind of are always just hard words Jesus and never realize or never put forward any of the the full picture of the compassion of the Savior. And so Luke brings this teaching passage in for a purpose. We get this incredible further insight into who Christ is and what kind of God we serve. Look at the compassion that Jesus has on this disabled woman. Now, it's easy to allegorize this event. You guys know what an allegory is. Um, like a, the famous example of an allegory is uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, and everything symbolizes something else. And so you take this. Uh, this area and it symbolizes this thing and this other character it symbolizes this and everything has a symbol it's a symbolic story and it's easy to take things like this and turn them into allegories and I read several of those this week that would take this and allegorize it this woman who's been bent over for 18 years and it, it, it's easy to take that and say in the same way what's the symbol of being bent over is this yoke it's this oppression it's slavery and so in the same way that this woman was bent over by sin by slavery by bondage this spirit of infirmity that's on her in the same way that she's bent over and Jesus shows up and brings liberty to those who are bent over by sin and bondage Jesus with all of us does show up and he liberates those who are disabled, bent over by sin and by slavery to sin. Now, I don't mind that allegory because there's biblical, you can back that up with biblical truth. Jesus shows up and he delivers. But the trouble with doing something like that is you just you open the door to make scripture all about these allegorizing everything. Uh, Origen, uh, early church father, was famous for allegorical interpretation. And Origen went way off the rails and became a heretic. So we don't want to just go charging into all of this allegorizing. There's a little church history for you. Origen. Anyway, um, so but if we do that, then it kind of misses the point of why Luke is writing. Remember, we started this whole thing off that Luke is writing so that to Theophilus, so that he might have certainty concerning the things which he had been taught way back in Luke chapter one. So Luke includes this and this miracle happens. You can look at it with some of these allegorical interpretations. But the reality is the point of this passage, this event is that Jesus healed a woman who was bent over and disabled for 18 years by saying to her, you are freed from this infirmity. Jesus has the power to take this woman who has all of this. I mean, imagine 18 years stuck in this position of being bent over. I mean, 18 years I know when we say 18 years, it's like, oh yeah, 18 years. But when you think about what, what was 18 years ago, what was going on? You know what was going on 18 years ago? We just got through Y2K. 
doesn't that seem like, I mean, this seems like a different millennia. I mean, the, the fact of, I remember sitting around thinking and, you know, a party like it's 1999, thinking about what's going to happen when the clocks roll over. That was a different world ago, wasn't it? That was pre-9-11. I mean, that's, we live in such a state now, and, and it's 18 years, you know, 2001, so 17 years ago, uh, all of the, the heightened security has come up with all these airplanes. Well, it's become so commonplace. It's like you don't even think about going to the airplane and not having to think about, I can't pack my, my scissors in my carry-on because they'll throw them away. And, and that's just a part of life now. But it's been all of these years, it just becomes a part of who you are. I'm going to have been married 15 years on August 30th. Now, I... There's no way to even comprehend my life apart from the reality of this relationship, right? Because things, when things happen that long, they become so intrinsic to who you are that to change them is incredible. This woman has lived with this infirmity for 18 years. That's stuck in something. And what does Jesus do? He shows up and he delivers her. And this woman doesn't like go uh, out to the hospital for physical therapy and she gets in the hot tub and she slowly progresses to straightening up and all of these stretches and all this stuff to where she can get to the place. I mean, think about all the muscles and ligaments and all the things that would be messed up from 18 years of being bent over to just stand up. The, the point of this event is simply look at the power of Jesus. Look at the incredible power of this man to raise up someone stuck in this position for 18 years and to have her upright and, and healed. The point of the story is not the healing of the woman primarily, but the power of Jesus to bring this healing. Which takes us, our main idea from the text this morning is that we must remember the promises of God and the power of of the promiser. We must remember the the promises of God and the power of the promiser. If we look at some of the details of this story and what they say to us about God, we see many things about what this tells us about Jesus. We see that Jesus has this incredible authority. He commands and she is delivered and straightened up. Jesus is powerful. This is an infirmity that has plagued her for 18 years. We also see Jesus is compassionate. Think of all the ways. This is, I, I just someone was mentioning to this in a sermon I listened to this week or last week. Think about all the different ways Jesus could have proved his power. And he did it in other ways, right? He calms nature and he, he, does, he does lots of other things. But think of all the ways that Jesus could have proved his power. And how does he do it? He has mercy on a, on a woman who's been disabled for 18 years and heals her. He has no need, no obligation to include her in his display of power. It's all compassion that he would take this woman and, and make a display of his power and, and her get the incredible benefit. Jesus didn't, he could have flown up in the air and spun circles and shot lightning. He could have done, he's, he's God in human flesh. He could have done all sorts of things. And the way that he does it is by healing, having mercy and compassion on this woman and healing her. Jesus is compassionate. What grace 
it is that he includes her in this proving of his power. We also see, though, that Jesus is the seeker. This woman, though she gets chastised by the Pharisee, by this ruler of the synagogue, she's not up front trying, shouting up and down, or she can't do that, but she's not walking forward to even say, hey, I got this problem, Jesus, can you help me? She's just showed up for church one Sunday. She's probably sitting back separately where the women would have had to have sat separately from the men in this synagogue. She's off in a corner, and Jesus sees this woman, and he calls her forward to be healed. He calls her forward to be healed. He notices her. Jesus has authority. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is the great seeker. In the midst, though, of this incredible display of power, we, just, we see the absolute insanity of unbelief as well, don't we? He puts, Luke puts these events together. It is almost a working out of all that he's been warning us of. Of you can see the weather and you can tell when a storm's coming, but you don't know when the Son of God has showed up. And here it is on display. This leader of this synagogue, this woman is healed. Jesus has this display of power. And what does he say? He doesn't go go toe-to-toe with Jesus. He's too weak for that. But he says to the crowd, if you want to be healed, come back on a different day besides Saturday. Don't come on the Sabbath. Don't come on Saturday to be healed. Come on Sunday. Come on Monday. Come some other day. As, as if that woman showed up on Monday, that guy could have healed her. He good enough. He, he, he has just total blindness to what when the master shows up. Jesus is warning and warning, repent, repent. See, see God for who he is. See the truth of what the kingdom among us looks like and believe, repent and believe. And here we see the insanity of what Jesus talks about in Luke 8 when he says, in seeing, they do not see. There is no difficulty that Jesus cannot overcome But if you're opposed to him, there is no depth you will not go to to deny him. This ruler begins to condemn not Jesus directly, but he chastises this woman essentially for getting healed on the Sabbath. What insanity this is. It's, It's incredible to think about sometimes the biggest barrier to faith in Christ is clinging to false religion clinging to false religion. We think if someone just gets, if they're religious, they're, they're, they're getting closer to Jesus. If they could just give them some morality, if we could just give them some religious activity, if they could just take up some religious ideals, oh, that's obviously they're getting closer to Jesus. But the reality we see from Scripture is picking up false religion just pushes you farther and farther and farther away from Jesus. To show up at church convinced that you're doing all right and looking down your nose. I mean, I show up, uh, I, I, I fulfill my obligations, I do my duties, I'm, you know, I, I'm there now, you know, I, I, I'm all right. To show up with this false religion actually pushes you farther away from Jesus. Because you begin to convince yourself you've got it together. You do not come desperate. You do not come as a sinner needing saved. You are missing the whole point. False religion will actually push you further away from crying out in your need for Jesus. We could spend a ton more time on the Sabbath and all that. And, and there's good other commentaries and, and conversation about the Sabbath. We're not going to get into that this morning. We're going to jump then into why he brings up these two parables. 
He, he moves into the teaching of these two parables. Some put these parables with the next passage. Some treat them on their own. But I think from verse 18, if you're looking at it, he says, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? He's tying these parables into this event. He's relaying them together. So I, I spent some time this week just trying to think about how do these parables fit in with this narrative of what Jesus has done. Weirdly, oddly enough, the um, Sunday school class this morning discussed these very same parables. And I was really, I sat and I listened through the whole thing to make sure they didn't steal any of my thunder this morning. I was afraid that they all thought we got this figured out. We're just going to leave now because I already know what Darren's going to say. They said it was, they, they talked on the exact same two parables out of Matthew. But what is the kingdom of God like? And there's these two parables, right? It's the mustard seed and the leaven. And parables as a general rule teach one real, one main idea. Some people, some of them are kind of allegorical, but as a general rule, a parable teaches one main idea. So these both teach this general idea that though something may be small, it is not an indicator of its effectiveness or its final result. Though something may be small. It is not an indicator of its final result, of where it will end up, of its ultimate effectiveness. The mustard seed, and I didn't bring one up here. You wouldn't be able to see it anyway if I held it up. It's a very small seed. But the mustard seed, though it's barely even big enough to notice, will, when it's planted, its final result will be a tree big enough for birds to rest upon. Now, you can read different accounts on this. I read one that talked about that there's been reports of mustard trees growing to be as tall as nine foot. I don't know. It might just be a big bush. I don't know. We specifically, I've never grown a mustard seed. Um, but there is this idea that this tiny little seed grows into this tree big enough that birds can take refuge in it. Birds can nest upon it. And it's this tiny seed. How does something this small and insignificant become this large? We would dismiss a mustard seed because of its smallness, yet it becomes this final result of a tree large enough for birds to rest in. And the leaven, likewise, there's these three measures, which is a large amount of, of meal or whatever she's baking. The three measures of flour, and it's just a little bit of leaven. Just a little bit of leaven. But if you've done any bread making, you know that that little bit of leaven, though it's three measures of flour and a little bit of leaven, as it's worked into the whole, this little bit, which you would look at and think, there's no way this, this handful of leaven will do, make any difference to this large three measures of flour. And yet it leavens the whole loaf. Why and how do these parables fit in with this event, this display of Christ's power, healing this woman, how do these parables, the mustard seed and the leaven, fit with this reality? Jesus knows what's coming for his followers. Jesus knows what's coming for his followers. And this is kind of one of the points they are making in Sunday school, that Jesus knows, that they're anticipating 
this display of power, this savior to come on the scene and to just immediately wipe out the Roman authorities, set up his kingdom. The prince of peace is coming and everything is going to be on the up and up from here on out. But Jesus knows something different is coming for his followers. Here at this synagogue, on this Sabbath, the people rejoice in what Jesus did. Yay, Jesus. They're, 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 they're excited. The crowd is excited for Jesus on this healing. But the day is coming when they will not rejoice in Jesus anymore. The day is coming when Jesus will be crucified. The crowd will shout, crucify him, crucify him. The day is coming for his disciples. Yes, after Jesus resurrects from the grave and ascends to heaven and, and, and sends the Holy Spirit down upon them. The day is coming for those who believe in him that they will face their own suffering. That their persecution is coming their way. What will be their thoughts when that day comes? What will be their thoughts when that... Jesus in this great display of power. And then here I am. And, the, and all, all, everything is just falling apart. Everything is going wrong. Persecution, death, uh, suffering coming our way. What will they think in that day? And in order to see this... Think about the contrast that's expressed in this pericope. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a tiny mustard seed. And you want to say, no, it isn't. I mean, look, a tiny mustard seed. Jesus just took a woman, bent over from 18 years in front of a crowd of people and made her go straight. And he says, oh, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And at that, at that point, you'd be like... Something's not matching up here. How is it like a mustard seed? It's like a, it's like a tiny handful of leaven that you put in three, three measures of flour. It, no, it isn't. This is like healing a woman who's been, been over for 18 years. It's like taking the flour and covering it in food coloring. You can't miss what's going on here, right? That's what it feels like. That's, the, that's what you would think. But Jesus teaches something different. What Jesus is doing is giving them some teaching that's going to help them through the difficulties that are on their horizons. And be sure of this, trouble is on the horizons. Christ is going to be killed. The rulers that are, that are rejoicing are going to be rejoicing at getting rid of him. So, what can these parables mean then in light of that reality? How do they help us? Bring together the reality of the awesomeness of our Savior and what His description of the kingdom is like. Here's the truth. Life doesn't always feel like Jesus is up there having His way. Doesn't always feel like Jesus is this incredible Savior taking this 18-year-old bent-over woman and straightening her up. We look around ourselves and we see countless circumstances that are bent clear down to the ground and no one is delivering them or straightening these things out. We look around and in this regard, the believer in Christ is not all that different from the rest of the world. We suffer through all sorts of illnesses and natural problems just like everyone else. And there are periods in our history where actually the Christians suffer worse because not only do they have to struggle with death of loved ones and disease and all sorts of natural disasters, but sometimes they actually suffer persecution for their faith. Sometimes for the Christian, it actually gets worse than it does being not a Christian. So then what are we to do? 
Where has this massive Jesus gone? Do you ever think that? Or have I just had a, a, a more pessimistic week than the rest of you? This Jesus heals this woman. Where is this, this, this massive, oppressive Jesus? He goes on and teaches something, doesn't he? He says, listen, the kingdom of heaven is not like you think it is. It's a mustard seed. And you may think it's almost to disappear. But the day is coming when those who come to this mustard seed as it grows will find shelter and a place to rest. We must remember, first, the promises our God has made, and second, His power to accomplish His promises. We must remember the promises of God and the power of the promiser. In the midst of the winter of discouragement, you may look around and see a kingdom that is nothing more than a tiny, cold mustard seed. Jesus knows this. That's why he shares this parable. What's his point? That even though it may look like there is no hope and no future at times for the people of God, they are never without hope. The mustard seed of the kingdom will bear fruit in the proper season. And what seems so small and insignificant will become a tree capable of supporting those who come to rest in its branches. This is what Paul is saying in places like Philippians chapter 1, verses, verse 1, verse 6, verses 3 through 6. They say this, it says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, this is verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Where's Paul when he writes this letter? He's in jail. When, when Paul goes on at the end of chapter 1, he talks about that it has been granted to the Philippians, not only that they should believe in his name, but that they should suffer for his sake. They have future suffering on their way. Paul's no, no hiding the reality. He's in jail. He's suffering. He says, this, well, I have no doubt this will turn out for my deliverance. And by that, he means whether he, he, Christ is going to be honored, whether by life or by death, he says. Philippians chapter 1. He's talking about this reality that by life or by death, Christ will be magnified. He's got future suffering for him. He says to the Philippian church, you have future suffering that's been granted to you to believe in his name and to also suffer for his sake. And in light of that, what does he say? I know this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work, even if it's just a mustard seed, he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is praying with joy for these believers. He rejoices knowing that the one who has begun the good work will bring it to its fullness at the right season. So if you look around, Philippian Christians, and all you see is a mustard seed, all you see is just a handful of leaven and three measures of things to cover. We must remember the promises of God and the power of the promiser. How does this help? It is meant to give you strength for your days. This is a weary and a wearisome world. Is it not? And if... If, if, if you're not in that place right now, I rejoice with you. If everything's going great in your life, I, I'm glad for that. 
But don't tune out. Because we all live in a fallen planet. And where are some things... I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. Where are some ways things are on the way? They are. We live in a fallen planet and difficulties are on their way. If you love anyone, difficulties due to living in a fallen world will come your way. You know, I needed to think on these parables this week. I needed to think on these. Sometimes you look around and and it feels like what you have is so small and what is against you is so large. What you have is so small. What's against you is so large. And I know many of you feel the same way. You're familiar with my difficulties, but none of you are without your own. Many of you, some of you have lost children. Some of you have lost spouses. You're here and you're alone. Some of you have had threatening illnesses yourself, and maybe even right now are fighting threatening illnesses. Maybe you haven't lost your children to death, but they're, they're estranged from you, or they're lost and not, not seeking God. Sometimes you look around and you think, God isn't doing enough. Where, where is this powerful Jesus? What is going on? As our culture drifts further and further away from any understanding of biblical Christianity, you could get concerned. Churches are not full like they used to be. Are they not? This church here, many of you have given your lives for this institution to go forward. You have given your money, your energy, your time to see it through. And you look around and you think, especially in the summer months sometimes, it's easy to look around and struggle to be encouraged because you feel like what I've given so much is, is, is still so small. It's still so small. It's easy to look around and ask what can be done with what little we have. But the answer is in the reality that our hope is not just in the promise, but in the one who makes the promise. The one who makes the promise. Romans 5, I just want to end here with you this morning. If you've got and want to grab one out, just Romans 5 is so good. I want to end here, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Down in verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where can we go in the difficult moments of life when it feels like everything around us is failing? We can look to the one who will not fail and the promises that he has made, knowing that he has the power to perform them. And will do so in the proper season. When the relationships break down. When this diagnosis comes. When you look around and you struggle to see any good. Do not forget 
that Christ has taught us that though the mustard seed is small, in its proper season, those who come to it for rest will not be disappointed. You hear me? Though the mustard seed be small, those who come to it in its proper season will find rest in it at the proper season. Do not forget what Christ has taught. If you are Christ through penitent faith and His work, you are His and He will not let you go. He will finish what He has started and you will not be put to shame in the final day. This truth that God will work His good purposes for His people, no matter what they may be able to see of His purposes in the moment. If it's the leaven that you, once you grab a hold of, it will work itself into every part so that you will sing like the psalm writer in Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Hope in God. In the face of this difficulty, in the face of the difficulty of the psalmist, he remembered the promises and the power of God and put his hope there. And all who do so Remembering that though I may only see a mustard seed, remembering that this leaven seems so small at times, God will work His purposes for the ultimate good of His people. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And all who do so, trusting in these things, looking to the promises of God and the strength of the one who promised them, will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, help us in this place this morning. Give us eyes to see clearly the goodness of your promises to us. Grant to us, God, faith. To see you, to trust you, to know you're not surprised that at times in the lives of your disciples, they may look and think the kingdom of God is just a mustard seed and so many things seem so much larger Nothing prevents you from working your purposes. And your purposes for your people are for their ultimate good. God, give us eyes to see it. Hearts that rejoice in it, full of faith in your promises and your power to do the things that you have promised. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.